We have been ministering on the subject of honoring God for several weeks. And in these teachings, we started out by sharing with you from one of the studies how that Jesus prayed for a man that was blind and afterwards he asked him what he saw and he said he he saw men as trees. And he proceeded to pray for him again till he saw men as men and trees as trees. And we use that as an example to show how that what God wants in our life is complete and total victory in our lives. He wants us to be complete in Him. He doesn't want us just to accomplish half of our goals in this life, but He wants us to come into the fullness of Christ. The requirements to do that, we said we need to avoid the leaven of hypocrisy, which means that we must serve God in sincerity and in truth. Not just sincerity, but both sincerity and in truth. And then secondly, we said that we must be victorious in the warfare that we're in. First Timothy 6.12 says to fight the good fight of faith. We're in a warfare. And the enemies are the world, the flesh, and the devil. The world is the allurements and the temptations and the things of this world as well as the influences of the world, the influences of the people in this world. The Bible says, a wise man chooses wise friends. Companion of fools be brought to naught. Too often we just don't really stop and think about the people that we associate with. I mean, we are not to go out of the world, but at the same time we're not to blend in with the people of the world, because as a man thinketh in his heart, so is he. Unless you're an extremely strong Christian, they're not going to, they're going to pull you down. You're not going to pull them up. Too often that just becomes an excuse. We talked about last week the importance of crucifying the flesh. That means taking the past attitudes and habits that we developed before we became born again, or that we continued to allow to go on after being born again. And that's our enemy, is the flesh. And we're called to crucify it, put it to death. And the third is the devil. First Peter 5 eight says, Be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary the devil, as a roaring lion, walks about seeking whom he may devour, whom resists steadfastly, in the faith. The devil is our arch enemy. What does that mean? What does arch enemy mean? Dolan? What 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 does arch mean? You don't know? Uh, yeah. Ultimate number one chief. Our chief number one enemy. Enemy number one in this world is the devil. And yet even though we've been warned in Scripture to be sober and to be vigilant and to be on guard against this enemy, and the Bible describes him as our arch enemy, he is our number one enemy, yet at the same time, I find a lot of Christians don't really stop to take seriously 
the power and the influence of this spiritual foe that is working against us. In Ephesians chapter 6, for example, we're told that we are to put on the whole armor of God so that we may stand against his wiles. Ephesians 6. Finally, my brother, and he says, be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. That means to stand in his strength and his power and overcome any temptations and accusations and things that the world or the devil may use against us to try to destroy our health, our mind, our relationships, our witness and testimony. He says, put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. For we wrestle not against flesh and blood. Now, he, he he's speaking here about how that we're not really wrestling against people that are working against us. We see people. We see co-workers. We see difficult bosses. We see leaders of countries that are tyrannical. We see children, husbands, wives. We see people that are causing us in some way not to live our Christianity. And too often, he says, we're not wrestling against flesh and blood, but it is the powers that are working behind them that you don't see. That's what we're warring against. So too often, we try to war against them by using carnal means. Means like the things that we can come up with. Using the tongue, arguing, using uh, the court system, circumstances, when in reality what we're dealing with is a spiritual foe. We wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this world, against spiritual wickedness that is in heavenly places. So he tells us then we're to take on take on the whole armor of God. The way to deal with Satan and what he's trying to do in our life is by the spiritual weapons that God has given unto us. His name, his word, the blood, primarily the word of God, keeping it in our heart, choosing to live it and overcome the temptations not to live it. But our arch enemy is the devil. It isn't always just people that we're dealing with. It's Satan behind us. It's not always the old habits and attitudes of the flesh. Sometimes it is, but sometimes it's not. Sometimes it's our arch enemy, and the way that we overcome him is to be sober and to be vigilant and not to be ignorant of his devices. Second Corinthians chapter 11, Paul gave a warning to the church of Corinth. He said, don't be ignorant of Satan's devices which means that we can. Second Corinthians chapter 2 and verse 11, he's talking about here the purpose of Satan. They had a situation in the Corinthian church to whereby a man fell into fornication. And so they put that man under church discipline. They put him out. And after he was put out of the church, God granted unto him repentance. He chastened him sore. We don't really know the details of what happened. But God chastened him. And the man turned his life around, and so instead of the church receiving him back and helping him to continue on in his 
purpose and goal as a Christian, coming into that completeness we talked about, they kind of wanted to write him off. They didn't want anything to do with him. And so Paul wrote to them and admonished them. And he said in verse 10, To whom you forgive anything, I forgive also. If I forgave anything, to whom I forgave it, for the sake forgave I it in the person of Christ. Kind of big words, but uh, other verses, like in verses 8 and 9, he says, he, he said, confirm your love toward him that he, because he's repented. But then he makes a statement, lest Satan should get an advantage of us, for not we're, we are not ignorant of his devices. And the word devices in the Greek means we're not ignorant of his purposes. His purpose, our arch enemy, his purpose is to destroy us. It's to destroy our spiritual life, physical life, mental life, family life. He's out to destroy us. The United States of America has an arch enemy that they talk about in the media quite frequently. Who would you say is enemy number one right now in America in 2007? I'd say it's Osama bin Laden. I mean, that seems to be on the minds and attitude of a lot of people that our biggest terrorist enemy right now is Osama bin Laden. If we could just take care of him, a lot of problems would be resolved and we would be halfway secure. Well, our number one enemy is the devil. It's Satan. And too often, like here, we don't stop and think about the purposes that he's got. His purpose is to sift us as wheat. His purpose is to destroy your family and your life and your finances in some way. That's his goal. And that's what Paul said here. He said, we've got a man here who was living in fornication. We put him out of the church. We disciplined him. Now he says, receive him back, he says, and forgive him, lest Satan should get an advantage of us, because his purpose is to destroy. God's purpose is to restore. God's purpose is to heal. God's purpose is to forgive. God's purpose is to complete. But the if we're ignorant of that, ignorant of the fact that Satan's purpose is to destroy then we too often are just not going to see what's really going on in our lives. I'm sure all of us here in some way are being attacked by circumstances, whether they be physical or financial or mental or domestic or whatever in some way, and too often we're just looking at it through our own carnal mind. And we're not really stopping to see, you know what, this is the devil working and operating in this situation. And we're trying to deal with things through our own methods. And he's a spiritual foe that cannot be overcome by the means of the flesh. And that's what Paul was talking about in Ephesians chapter 6. We've been given power and authority over all the power of the enemy. The Bible says so. Luke ten nineteen, Jesus said, Behold, I give unto you all power and all authority over all the power of the enemy, and nothing shall by any means hurt you. But I think too often times we're sitting back and we're being complacent, we're being naive, and we're not really stopping to think about this worthy foe that we have and how dangerous he could be. Almost like Osama bin Laden. Who would ever think that some character out in a third world country surrounded by opium out on the desert somewhere 
could actually come up with the sophisticated planning and technology to take four jet airliners and cruise them into buildings and into the Pentagon and one headed for the White House. That took a tremendous amount of planning, a tremendous amount of money, a tremendous amount of technology. And who would ever think that some guy out in the desert somewhere in Afghanistan would have that kind of power and ability? That's what the world is thinking. This guy is a, is a very worthy foe. And we have a very worthy spiritual foe. We've been given power and authority over him, but yet at the same time, if we naively sit back and think that just because we, we say we've got power and authority, he can't hurt us, and we don't listen to what Peter said. Peter said, be sober, be vigilant. Why did he say that? Because your adversary, the devil, is very strong. He's like a roaring lion. And his purpose and goal is to seek to devour. I mean, stop and think for a minute. If the devil could influence Peter. I mean, turn to Mark 8. I'm sure you're familiar with this, but I think just reminding us of the word will help us be a little bit more alert and on guard. Peter was one to whereby they, Jesus had asked a question. Whom do men say that I am? And they went on and said, well, some say you're the prophet, some say you're John the Baptist, some say you're Elijah. And then he said, who do you say that I am? And he said, thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. And when he said that, Jesus went on to say to him, you are a you are blessed for that revelation. And then after commending Peter and saying to him that he was blessed for that revelation that he'd received from directly from God, he went on to talk to them about how the the he was going to have to go to the cross and he's going to have to suffer at the hands of religious leaders. And Peter, this apostle who had been so in tune with the Holy Spirit to receive that revelation took him aside and began to rebuke him for that. Don't talk that way. That's not going to happen. You're being negative. And Jesus, looking at Peter, he didn't say, Oh, Peter, you really let me down. Peter, you blew it. You listened to God to my father once, but now, now you're not you're not with it, Peter. Get out of the flood. He didn't just lightly admonish him. Jesus looked at Peter and wasn't really looking at Peter, but looking at Satan working behind him. Satan can be working behind the life of a person. He's got to have a body to manifest himself through. I mean, he's a spirit being. He's invisible. He doesn't speak audibly. Or if he did, it'd be rare. He's got to have some person to work through. And in this case, he chose to speak through Peter. He used Peter's mouth, Peter's mind. Peter's body. And when Jesus saw that, he didn't just rebuke Peter. He said, listen to it, verse 33. He didn't say, get thee behind me, Peter. He said, get thee behind me, Satan. For thou savorest not the things that be of God, but the things that be of men. Peter was used to the devil. What an embarrassing situation to be in. We read about Ananias and Sapphira. It was just a thought. It was just a, the influence that was there that the devil told Ananias and Sapphira, you can sell your property and tell them you sold it for so much. It's just a little bit of a lie. You know, so they, in comes Ananias, giving 
to the church what he had said. He had evidently promised in the past that he was going to sell some property, give all the money to the church. He said, I've sold an acre of land for 5000 bucks. Here's the five, when in reality he sold it for seven. And all that, all that Peter said to him when he listened to that, he said, verse 3, Peter said to Ananias, Why has Satan filled thine heart to lie to the Holy Spirit? And then he fell down dead, and his wife went along with it, and she likewise. But obviously Satan filled the heart of Ananias to lie. The man was a Christian. It doesn't say he wasn't a Christian, but he, he didn't resist the devil. He wasn't sober. He wasn't vigil. And the devil used him. And as a result, he was severely punished. In 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 and verse 18, there were times when Paul was trying to do something in his ministry, trying to go places in his ministry, trying to minister places. And he just couldn't get anywhere. Second, 1 Thessalonians 2 and verse 18, he wrote to the Thessalonians here that he wanted to come more than once, but, well, listen to what he says. Wherefore, we would have come unto you, even I, Paul, once and again, but Satan hindered us. Now, if Satan could hinder the Apostle Paul, if he could use the mouthpiece of, of Peter to try to stop Jesus from going to the cross, if he could lie through Ananias and Sapphira, and I read in other places, like here in 1 Timothy 5 and verse 15, when he's talking about widows and being making sure that the church takes care of widows that are widows indeed, and if they're not, you know, if they're younger and they can marry, he says, we don't want to support them. They'll become busybodies, and their tongue will be used by the devil, which it already has been, to cause division and strife, and some have fallen away. First Timothy 5.14 I will therefore that the young women marry, bear children, guide the house, give no occasion to the adversary to speak reproachfully, for some have already turned aside following Satan. Now, the church could be sifted by Satan, and Peter could be used by Satan, and Ananias was lying by Satan, and Paul's ministry could be hindered by Satan. Then I think we ought to take seriously, and I'm scratching the surface here, of our arch enemies working in lives. I think we ought to learn to be sober and vigilant, don't you? I think just too often we're just looking at the externals. We're looking at a person. We're looking at a circumstance. We're listening to a doctor. We're listening to a lawyer. We're looking at things and not really realizing that the devil is working behind the scenes to defeat us and overcome us. Jesus defeated him at Calvary. Hebrews 2.14 says that he destroyed him who had the power of death. That's the devil. And Acts 28 and verse 18 Paul made this statement how that he had been sent by revelation when stopped on the road to Damascus, and here he's giving his testimony that his calling was to deliver people from the powers of Satan. He says here that when he was when the Lord appeared to him, verse sixteen, he says, Rise, stand upon thy feet, I have appeared to thee for this purpose to make thee a minister and a witness both of these things which thou hast seen and those things which appear unto thee, delivering thee from the people and Gentiles unto whom I now send thee, to open their eyes, to turn them from darkness to light, and from the power of Satan unto God. I mean, that was Paul's ministry. 
Satan is a defeated foe. And we've been delivered from his power. But one has to really stop and ask the question, if we've been delivered, then why is Satan still getting the victory in this warfare when he is a defeated foe? Why is he? Well, there are a number of different reasons. I happen to be reading a book in which a Christian theologian was talking about how in the college where he was speaking, he stopped and asked his class one day of 30 students, he said, how many of you believe in a personal devil? He knew that the reason why Satan was getting advantage over Christians was because they denied his reality. That was probably one of the biggest things right there. They just sat back and kind of denied the reality of Satan and just thought that by ignoring him, there would be no effect, negative effect that could occur in their life. So he asked the question, how many of you believe in, the, in a personal devil? And out of the 30 that were there, three young students raised their hands. So he went on to say, well, how many of you believe in the existence of God? And all 30 raised their hands, 100%. And then he went on to say, if I gave you a definition of God as a spirit being who was able to influence men for good, would you accept that as a, a definition? You know, not completely thorough, but is that a good definition that God is a spirit being who is able to influence men for good? And they all 30 agreed and said, yes, that would be acceptable. So then he went on to say, why do you affirm the existence of a spirit being who can influence people for good, but, but deny the reality of a spirit being who can influence people for evil. And he said the class got silent. And finally he said, one young man wrote, raised his hand, he said, because of the, he said, we deny the reality of Satan because it's been proven by medical science. Modern science, I'm sorry, not medical. Modern science, that he does not exist. And he said, wait a minute, what law of modern science has proven that Satan does not exist? Is it the law of physics? Is it the law of gravity? He went through a big long list of laws that he asked the question. I'm, I'm paraphrasing. I didn't want to write them all down. And again, the class got silent. And finally, one young man said, well, let's face it. The devil belongs in the realm of ghosts and goblins and comic books. And they all kind of laughed and chuckled and said, yeah, that's where he belongs. And he went on to say how that basically what had happened was that class had reduced the devil into a fugitive from a Halloween party. You know, the devil with his red suit, forked tail, horned creatured image is something that really came out, came out of the medieval church. I don't know if you're aware of this or not, but it did. The medieval church believed in the reality of Satan. They literally believed that there was a devil. And they all knew from Ezekiel 28 and Isaiah chapter 14, they all knew why he fell because of his arrogance to his pride and his beauty. They all knew that. They all believed that. I mean, you're all familiar. I don't think I have to go read to you about Satan and Ezekiel 28, Isaiah 14. We've done that many, many times. But anyways, they all knew that he was 
that he fell because of his pride and because of his arrogance and his beauty and so forth. So they interpreted when the Bible said to resist the devil, like James 4, 7, resist the devil and he will flee from you. They felt the way to attack the devil and resist him was to mock him by describing him as nothing more than a horned creature, often red, but not always. The theory went like this. If we attack Satan at his point of weakness, he will flee from us. And so if we appoint him, if we insult him, if we attack his intelligence, if we attack his beauty, then we are resisting him. And so many silly portraits were made for that purpose that they were literally trying to resist the devil. I've got a few of them up here that you might... These are famous paintings of the devil in the medieval period. This one is Gatto's Satan in the Last Judgment, 1267. And you can see he looks like some kind of a big fat creature that has horns coming out of his head and he's got people dangling from his hands and, you know, you can see the picture and let it describe by itself. But here they were trying to insult him. They were trying to insult his intelligence. They were trying to insult his wisdom. They were trying to insult his beauty. That was their way during this period of history in which they were trying to resist the devil. And so this is a painting that was describing it. Later on, this is a very famous one, King Dante's Inferno, 1308. And here you can see where he looks like, and I don't know, can you see that very well? He looks like some kind of a man-type creature. Looks like he's got a permanent. He's got horns coming out of his head, and he's got wings like a bat that are coming off. It's over, over to the left-hand side. I didn't as bright maybe as I'd like it to be. But as you can see, he's got his hand on his chin and he's kind of confounded and discouraged. And all of these were ways in which they were they thought we can resist the devil by mocking him and ridiculing him. There's a couple more. Michael Pocker, 1435. You see him here and picture-wise he has a greened, skinny creature with wings. And horns, you know, he looks like kind of a lizard that's standing up. And they're mocking, they're ridiculing his appearance. And this just kept right on going. I've given you another one, William Blake, 1757, in, in which Satan here, Lucifer, is depicted again in a way in which people are making mockery. So the early church, or the medieval church, and through this period, that was... Their way of resisting the devil was by mocking him and ridiculing him and trying to imply that he was nothing. And of course, that's just continually carrying on. It carries on even on to today. Let me give a more modern picture to the left, whereby they've taken a creature here now that they've stuffed and they're going through a parade and they've got him up there. It looks like something from the Mardi Gras, although I don't think it is the Mardi Gras. And here we have, of course, the 21st century where you have a, a red devil stirring a pot. And I believe that's an advertisement for some kind of a hot pepper sauce. And down at the bottom is a funny little creature that has to do with an athletic team.
But you see how he has been able to take the religious man and to get to the place through a period of time to whereby they think that resisting him is going to be by carnal means. Pictures, portraits, they can put all these portraits out and he's not insulted in the least. If he can control and influence and destroy their lives, that's what he wants to do. And I'm sure that he's really not afraid of what is on the side of a jar of hot peppers in regard to what people think he may appear and look like. Because all that, I'm sure he just snickers and laughs at because he knows that they've reduced his power to nothing more than a commercial advertisement. The truth is, he's an angel of light. The truth is, he's a counterfeit. And like any counterfeit, he's going to get as close to the truth as possible, and yet it won't be costly to have it. You know, if you're a counterfeiter, for example, and you want to have counterfeit money, you put it for, you take a dollar bill, for example, and lay it onto a high-tech copy machine and print it out. And you could have maybe five, six, eight, ten dollars for the cost of one little sheet of paper. I mean, the copy machines today are, are a threat to Counterfeiting. So they have put ribbons and different devices on the inside of it now to whereby when you copy it, it shows up and they can't use that method. But people were trying to do it for a long time. But still, a counterfeiter is one that's going to get as close to the real as possible, but yet have it cheap. I mean, nobody, nobody in their right mind is going to take, for example, and be a counterfeiter whereby they make a copy of a of a $10 bill or a $20 bill, and then put a sticker like of Bill Clinton or Santa Claus or something on the face of whoever's on the Lincoln with a five, and then take it to a bank. Joan works in a bank. I mean, if somebody handed her a $5 bill and it had a picture of Santa Claus on, she'd know right away that's fake. Right? A counterfeiter is going to try to make it as close to the real as possible and yet keep it cheap. And so basically what you have is a lot of religion today to whereby it gets as close to the possible, as close as possible to the real, but it doesn't cost you anything. Second Timothy chapter three, for example, Paul warns about this very, very thing. It doesn't cost you anything. It doesn't cost you the cross. That's probably the most expensive thing, the hardest thing for the Christian, is the life of denial of self. We live in an age just like the judges, where every man does that which is right in his own eyes. And for some reason, we can't get people to see that. Paul said it was going to happen. I mean, stop and wake up. Things are just gradually coming on us. And we're gradually accepting them. Even though you really have to stop and wonder, is that a sign of the times that we're living in? I mean, I saw the other day, for example, where they were talking about how that children are now going to be paying for their lunches with a fingerprint. I mean, you just walk up to a machine and put your finger on that machine and it automatically will 
take and deduct from any money that's been put into your account, but that's your ID is a fingerprint. Technology's moving fast. We're in a worldwide, we're in a world economy. The Bible said that there would become a day where knowledge would increase. It would become a one world government, a one world economy. It's here. Not the government so much, but yet the economy's here. Things are rapidly coming upon us. And the more they come, the more Hollywood just depicts anything to do with the demonic as nothing more than a Hollywood fun movie during the Halloween period to make big bucks. People are becoming dulled in their senses to really believe that there could be such a being as the devil who's seeking to do nothing more than kill, steal, and destroy. 2 Timothy chapter 3 says, Know that in the last days perilous times will come. Men will be lovers of themselves. I mean, they want to run their own life. They want to do their own thing. They've got rights that's been given to them by the government. They've got rights that have been given to them by others, and they want their rights, and they don't want anybody interfering in those rights. They want to do what they want to do. He says they'll be covetous. They'll be boasters. They'll be proud, and they'll be blasphemers. I mean, I was just watching last night a television show in which it was PBS. And they were describing, it was, it was a war veteran, and he was describing the battle on Guadalcanal. And in the process of talking about the battle that they were going through, this on public television, he just started cutting loose with a bunch of profanity using my Lord's, lame, my Lord's name in vain. I mean, he didn't think one thing about saying Jesus this and Jesus that, you know, and I'm not saying what he said. But he just cut loose with how that these, uh, it was just filthy language on television. <clears throat> and I thought, you never would have found that, especially on PBS, back 20, 30 years ago. I mean, just, just the other day, for example, after the uh, Iranian leader came over and he started speaking to the United Nations, and different publications were coming out. There was a school in Colorado that printed a newspaper to whereby they brought the four-letter F word out next to President Bush. I mean, the, the lewdness, the profanity, the filth, it's on the rise. And this is what he's speaking about here. They're blasphemers. I mean, President Bush is a man, he is the leader of our country. He is to be respected. Even if you don't agree with his policy, he is still to be respected. And you don't put out a paper that says a four-letter F word, Bush, beside it, and think that God in some way is not going to deal with that. But we live in a time where we don't care what that says. We have the right to freedom of speech. That's the argument of this school. I mean, it's right there. Lovers of their own selves, boasters, proud Blasphemers, disobedient to parents, disrespectful. They don't want to be under someone's authority. Unthankful. We'll talk about that a little bit later on. Unholy, without natural affection. Homosexuality has been greatly increased in the last 20 years. 
to whereby when this Iranian was speaking at Columbia University and made some comment that there were no homosexuals in Iran, oh, the media in Hollywood just had heyday with that. They just had all kinds of fun with that. Saying like, yeah, right, there are none. Like, it's like, that's just a common practice, man, they're all over the world. Yeah, it is a common practice, and it is all over the world. But it just shows how sad the condition the world really is in. Because there's no natural affection. Or I shouldn't say it that way, there's not any. It's just that that's an unnatural affection that is on the, on the rise. False accusers, incontinent, fierce despisers of those that are good, traitors, heady, high-minded, lovers of pleasure, more than lovers of God. Having a form, literally, of our religion. You see, a lot of the things that I've said, a lot of those things could be found right in the church. A lot of churches. And it's a sad day to see it happen. And the Bible says, from such turn away. The devil is a counterfeiter. He's going to come as close to the truth as he can, and yet not have it be costly so that he can gain control in a person's life. The scriptures say that he is not some kind of a horned being. Genesis 3 says he's very crafty and shrewd. Ezekiel 28 says his beauty is stunning. 1 Peter 5.8 says he's as a lion. He is the anti-lion of Judah. One devours and the other redeems. Lion is a symbol for strength. One for evil, the other for good. And we're told clearly not to be ignorant of his devices. Well, there are two ways that Satan deceives. I'd like to just get started a little bit about upon this, but then I'm going to stop and, and deal with two particular things next week that are devices or ways that Satan will seek to gain control in our life. Temptations and accusations. And how do we resist them? But we'll save that for another time. There are two ways that Satan deceives. The pendulum swings to extremes in one way or the other. In one way, we, he wants the pendulum to swing like this student body where 27 denied his reality. He wants the pendulum to swing in people's minds to whereby he doesn't exist except only in their mind. That he's not a real spirit being, as the Bible says, that can seek to hinder and destroy people's lives. They underestimate his strength. They call him non-personal, a mere influence, a phrase that is used to speak of the collective sins of society. And that's one extreme to whereby he just does not exist. But the other extreme is a preoccupied fixation upon him. You've seen this, I've seen this. I've seen some ministries years ago rise up and and everything becomes a demon. And they blame everything on the devil. And the result is there's no personal responsibility taken for a person's life. They blame everything upon the devil. And while sometimes things may be the devil, they don't take any personal responsibility for their own life. And you can't crucify the devil. 
and cast out the flesh. You have to learn that balance. So if he can get people to the other extreme, to whereby they're, they're preoccupied with his power, preoccupied with what he's doing, they're actually confessing to his power. They're actually confessing it to the place to whereby they blame everything upon it. And they end up being overcome by it because they give him more power than the power that they've got. The other extreme is a preoccupied fixation that leads to an overestimate of his strength. To be sure, we don't want to do that. We know that he can hinder. I mean, when he said to, when he used Peter, Jesus said to Peter, he said, Satan desires to sift you as wheat. Peter, you know, he rose up and he said, Lord, I'll never deny you. I'll die before you, before I ever deny and Jesus went on to say, before the cock crows three times, that'll never happen. But we can't blame every sin on the devil. To be sure, the devil can be behind a lot of sin. But at the same time, you got to keep a balance between the two. I've heard ministers say, for example, that every person that is addicted to some type of drug, whether it be marijuana, whether it be tobacco, something of that sort, that that's nothing more than a demon. And every time you cast that demon out, like a demon of tobacco, when it comes out, it always sighs. You know, like when you are puffing on a cigarette, you take an inhale it, and then you exhale out the smoke. And so I've heard ministers say that every every person that is addicted to, to tobacco needs to go through deliverance, and every time that that demon goes, you'll know that it goes because it'll go... Ah, as it goes, like blowing out smoke. See, that's an extreme. I've heard others say, for example, that alcoholism is a demon. To be sure, a person can be addicted to alcohol, and that can be a demonic power. But people go to the extremes on it, to whereby it is the only way to be delivered to alcoholism is to command a demon of alcoholism to go out, and every time it goes out, it'll vomit. If you don't vomit, the demon didn't go out. Vomiting is related to alcoholism. See, I'm talking about extremes. I've heard people say, for example, that there's a demon of profanity. And every time that demon, when it is cast out, it goes out cussing. If it doesn't go out cussing, it doesn't go out. It reminds me of the days when people had different methods of getting the baptism in the Holy Spirit. If you didn't, you didn't get the baptism in the Holy Spirit unless you sat in a bathtub. I remember this one time I had to laugh. A person had was not receiving the manifestation of their tongues. So they went and sat in a bathtub. And when they got in the bathtub, they were able to speak in tongues. And so that became for them a law that said, if you don't get your tongues, then you need to go sit in a bathtub because the Holy Spirit will enable you to speak in tongues and you sit in the bathtub. Now that's not true and not scriptural. You know what I'm saying. But that's how people are. They go to extremes. And I've heard some... I've heard some really weird things on Christian television that you want to just say, where do you get all that stuff at? To be sure, there can be a demon of tobacco or drugs and alcohol and profanity. You see, you just give in long enough to something like that and you can open yourself up to the control of a demonic spirit to whereby he will take you captive at his will. 
He'll take, he, you, you just will find that it'll be something that you may want to control and you don't control and you've gone beyond the flesh and you've opened yourself up through a door to a demonic spirit and the way to be delivered of that is commanded in Jesus' name to depart and take it by faith. If there's no sigh when it goes out, it doesn't matter. We take deliverance by faith. If it doesn't go out cussing and swearing, it doesn't matter. We take it by faith. If it doesn't go out, you, you cast out a spirit of alcoholism out of someone, and if it doesn't go out by vomiting, it's still taken by faith. That's what I'm saying. It becomes an extreme, though, to whereby every single sin in a person's life is a demon that needs to be cast out. And the problem with that is that responsibility is not taken on the part of the person, they end up blaming everything upon the devil. Just like in the denominational church, they're blaming everything upon their second nature. In charismatic churches, they blame everything upon demons. And they don't walk in the victory that they should. Not that Satan doesn't have power. But you've got to learn to properly keep a balance. You can't cast out the flesh and crucify Satan. It doesn't work. There basically are two chief ways that Satan directs his power. And I'm not going to get into these this morning because I want to, I want to talk about them next week. Two basic ways that we need to be most on guard with to be sober and vigilant is by the temptations that he throws at us and how to resist them and the accusations that he brings toward us. We've got to be sober and vigilant in the very beginning by resisting temptations and by resisting the accusations that he throws at us. And when we do that, we can walk in victory and win that warfare and that battle that we're in with the devil. Can you all say amen? The most important thing this morning that I want you to think about for the week is that too often, if we don't hear a message about this once in a while, we just tend to look at a person, a circumstance, a situation. And we think that the problem is the circumstance, the problem is the situation, the problem is the person, and we don't really see the power of Satan behind it that he's trying to gain a foothold in our life. And so we go about trying to attack it and deal with it by human means, and then we're not effective. The Bible says, be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary, the devil, has the strength of a roaring lion, and he is out to devour. Father in heaven, we ask that the word would just open up our spiritual understanding our spiritual mind, our sensitivity to the Holy Spirit, so that as we go through this week that's coming and we're faced with circumstances, that we can be discerning to see that, hey, this is nothing more than Satan using some person, using some circumstance, using some situation to try to hinder me, to try to get me to compromise upon the Word of God, to get me to, to get into the flesh. 
Satan in some way is trying to draw me out of the victory and into the into the realm to whereby I just lay aside my Christianity and blow it. And I'm going to be sober. I'm going to be vigilant. I'm not going to let my adversary have the upper hand in this situation. I'm going to use the blood of Jesus. I'm going to use the name of Jesus. I'm going to stand firm with the Word of God. And I'm going to resist Him and overcome Him. And I'm going to maintain my Christian life and my Christian walk in this situation. I have a lot more to say. I know you've given me to share. But I pray that the words that I've given this morning to the church be its seeds planted so we come back next week and hear the conclusion to this message that we'll have a few weeks of having our mind renewed by your word that we can be discerning and stand strong against Satan's power. Father, bless the word to our hearts and I ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.